Um, we've been in Micah, and his prophecy is an indictment of Yahweh, as chapter 6 says, against his people, based on the covenantal relationship that he's begun with his people. In short, Yahweh, the Lord, has rescued Israel in order that they might reflect his presence to the world, to embody his faithfulness, righteousness, mercy, and justice by standing with those in their midst who suffer the oppression of injustice. But they failed to do this, perverting justice and rejecting Yahweh's way. Thus Yahweh the Lord comes as a witness against his people, to be a faithful judge in their midst. So let's read again, very briefly, the first five chapters. I want to sit primarily, we're going to go all over the place in Micah, but I want to sit first in the first uh, couple verses of Micah's prophecy. I'm going to have it up on the screen, so Ben, if you could follow along with that. Um, Let me read very quickly, verses 2 through 5a. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All of this is for the transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of of Israel. This scene, the very beginning of Micah's prophecy, is a scene of Yahweh in his faithfulness coming as a witness into the world, into what you could say the cosmic courtroom, and Israel is found guilty. Yahweh is entering into the earth, and his presence and his faithfulness is leading him to judge his people and they are on the stand, and they are found guilty. God's faithful presence to the earth in Micah's prophecy here is as a witness evokes a faithful response to judge, that which ought not to be. And in this scene, we clearly see the, the imagery that all of creation is called into account in this moment as it were, to to take the stand in this moment. And the presence of Yahweh, creation itself, is undone. Very similar to his judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians when when Israel was enslaved. In the plagues, there are scenes over and over that Yahweh is the one who is over all creation. Yahweh is the one who created all things, and therefore he's the one that brought order into the world, and therefore can actually undo it as well. Not Pharaoh, not any other gods, but Yahweh. And here we see this again, that he is the rightful ruler over all creation. Verses, in verse 2, It says that he comes from his holy temple. And in the Hebrew language, that word, holy temple, the temple language there, is the same in the Hebrew language for palace. 
It's the same language that would be used for a king in a palace. So Yahweh is coming from his palace, his temple, where he reigns. And he's coming into the area in which he reigns, the world itself. And he has a reason for coming into his realm. It's for the transgressions of his people, of Jacob, of Israel. They have rebelled against Yahweh and his ways of faithfulness, justice, and mercy. And as Mark spoke on previous, in previous weeks, this is a covenant lawsuit. This is all based on the relationship that God himself has entered into with his people. They should have known this was coming, in other words. They were to live in the terms of the covenant, a right relationship with God, and therefore a right relationship with the people. To reflect his presence faithfully in justice and mercy while extending this to others. Yet, Micah says in chapter 2 that Israel is acting like an enemy. Thus, disaster is to come. They are using wicked scales, perverting justice, which is a grave distortion of Yahweh's character. Therefore, Ben, if you can click to the next text, therefore, in chapter 6, verse 13, Yahweh says, therefore I strike you with a grievous blow. Now, many of us are very uneasy with this topic of God's judgment. And I, and I think for good reasons, right? Sometimes we are caught in the mix of simply projecting that which is wrong upon others, taking the moral high ground. And we can oscillate between that and also between a disposition of pouring all that upon ourselves and our own brokenness. And so this becomes a very uneasy topic. But I would say we do not need to go in either of these directions. And we shouldn't. But we do need to ask the question, why? Why does God act in judgment against evil, generally speaking, and against his people? I'll give two very overarching reasons. First, God is vindicating himself. He is correcting the distorted and false image that his people have portrayed to the world. God is a God of justice, and he is a God of mercy. But his people have not reflected that. The world has not reflected that. And so he is vindicating himself. Second, God is being faithful to his goodness. A goodness that in the creation account we clearly see overflowed into beauty and life, wholeness. The Hebrew word for peace or shalom, this wholeness and this fullness of beauty, which evil itself has vandalized. And so God is acting in judgment to be faithful to his goodness and his goodness in this world. This beautiful world has been vandalized. And I think, deep down, right, we all want that to be the case. That that which is vandalized 
to be restored and made right. That which we sense to be wrong to be made right. And one of the ways I think uh, I've seen lately that I think portray this really well uh, is in in a very prophet-like way, which is kind of uh, strange, as you will come to see, but uh, it involves a a painting of Claude Monet. So Ben, if you can throw up Claude Monet's painting, uh, but not the next one, please wait for the next one. Um, This is Claude Monet's painting, Bridge Over a Pond of Water Lilies. Very well known, right? Beautiful. What you may not know about Claude is that he cultivated this garden that he painted. So he took the work and the effort to bring forth out of creation this image, which was real to him, that he painted of fullness of life. I mean, look at the lavish scene of growth that can be cultivated from this earth. It's beautiful. And he painted this scene in a lot of different paintings which um, people admire to this day. Now, don't go to the next picture yet, but there's another artist, a street artist, named Banksy. You may know of him. Kind of controversial, but he is somewhat of a prophet-like painter, I would say. And he has a painting in which he uses Claude Monet's painting, Bridge Over Pond of Waters. So go to the next painting. And here it is. It's the same picture, in essence, but with two discarded shopping carts and a construction cone in the pond. Now, he may be saying a lot of things in this picture, as he does with many others. Um, He's a cultural critic, you could say, a modern cultural critic, and he uses art to express that. In very, I think, honest uh, and good ways that we ought to reflect on. So, I think, in general, what he's expressing is that Monet's garden has been vandalized in this world. It's been polluted. It's been degraded. And in ways, it's been degraded by our greed, our consumerism, and our commodification of the world. Where, in the biblical witness, we see so clearly that God has created this world good and beautiful and given it over to us, humanity, to be received as a gift, and in receiving this gift, to steward it to its fullest potential of life and beauty. And yet, we've taken, we've grasped, we've polluted it, we've vandalized it. And the line, I want to say very clearly, the line between good and evil, as N.T. Wright, a theologian and Anglican bishop, would say, the line between good and evil runs through us all. And we need a good God to vindicate his goodness over all creation, to restore his shalom. God being a faithful judge is a God vindicating himself and restoring the good that we all need and long for. Now, how does God do this? What does striking a grievous blow look like in Micah's prophecy and in the biblical accounts? What does the disaster of his judgment look like? What does it appear as? 
And I want to put forward that Micah's expression of God's judgment comes in the form primarily of allowing sin to take its full effect. What St. Augustine, an African bishop and early church father theologian and leader, St. Augustine would say and describe as sin becoming the punishment for sin. In other words, their idols of Israel are crushed by the work of other idols. In chapter 1, verse 7, he uses this poetic parallelism. From the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. Speaking of Israel's wealth, Israel's life, they have taken from the, as a fee of a prostitute, she had gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. In other words, they've gathered their wealth like a prostitute or from a prostitute by giving themselves to lesser gods. And it will be taken from them by the domination of others. Sin becomes the punishment for sin. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it's described, Israel is described as being given over as a parting gift by God. And there's a play on words in this text that basically is trying to play off the image of a marriage. And Israel is being handed over as a parting gift because she is now betrothed, not to Yahweh, but to another, based on their pursuit of other gods and putting their trust in others. Yahweh is giving them as parting gifts. Go, he says. As Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York City, said, God is in the longest bad marriage in history. And he allows the dominion of others to be their crushing blow in exile. Now there's tangible implications to this as well. Very tangible, which I think we will feel ourselves. There's fractured and frustrated relationships. We're going to read chapter 6, which I'll put up on the screen for us. In chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, it says this. Yes, 14. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not repay, reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. Now, I've never made olive, or I've never made olive oil from olives, or pressed my own wine. But I imagine there's, that's a laborious job. And to do all that toil and work, and not reap the benefits, the joy, the goodness from this work. Frustrated relationship with creation. You will consume from the world, yet it will leave you craving for more. You will store up goods, yet it will not last, or it will be taken from you. You will labor hard, but not enjoy the fruits. And then there's a second level, too, in chapter 7. Put that on the screen. Chapter 7, verses 5 through 6. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. 
the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Fractured and frustrated relationships. A skepticism that will not only infiltrate your neighborhoods, those around you generically, but will infiltrate the closest bonds you have in this world. And they will be fractured, and they will be a means of frustration. Sin becomes the punishment for sin. When I was in college, on a church retreat, a man in his 50s or so, I did not know him personally, uh, gave his testimony. And he talked about how for much of his life, he abused other women through the use of pornography. And I remember him saying that he didn't see it that way for much of his life. Though it was a private thing that perhaps was harmful for himself, but he could keep it at bay. Then it wouldn't get too destructive. And after many years of using pornography, he ended up taking out another account to pay for it, to hide his struggle. Yet this craving would change him in ways he could not see. Anger, anxiety, lack of patience, and apathy that created a distance between him, his kids, and his wife. And after many years of deceiving his family, his addiction to pornography was exposed. And there was so much pain, so much deceit, so much abuse, that his wife could not stay in the relationship. And she divorced him. He lost the trust of his kids. And it was only after this avalanche of destruction that he openly confessed and sought the communal help he needed to be healed. I remember him clearly calling the group, which had a large group of college students and young adults, to not let sin destroy everything good in your life. And in this way, and in so many other ways, this sin being the punishment for sin, is deeply personal. And it's also infected communities as a whole and in worldwide systematic ways. While these are heavy and unfortunate enough to understand sin's punishment, the ultimate result of sin having its full effect is the absence of Yahweh himself. As God, in his right judgment, allows for sin to become the punishment for sin, in essence, he steps back, and darkness fills in. In Romans chapter 1, St. Paul describes the logic in this way. First, he's describing humanity, and it's in its predicament. Humanity exchanges God's glory for lesser things. And in that exchange, the language is, God gives over. Or God gives over. Up. He steps back. He gives them over to their pursuit of lesser things. God's action is an action, but it's much more of a stepping back. 
and allowing darkness to fill it in by our participation in it. He gives them over. The world so often cries out. And this weekend is not unlike many others. The world cries out in pain and in frustration and in brokenness. And often the question is, where is God in all of this? If there even is one. The answer is, humanity has hidden him. Israel has hidden him. In Micah's prophecy, we have hidden him. Humanity was to bear his image, reflect his glory, and steward his goodness to the entire world. And we have not walked in his ways and embodied his presence. Thus, when Jesus steps into our history, walks faithfully in God's way, embodying his ways in every way, embodying his presence perfectly, he is rightly called the image of the invisible God by Paul in Colossians. The culmination of Jesus' faithfulness leads him to the cross where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? God is hidden to him in this moment. The crucifixion is this moment when all of evil, all the darkness that has filled the space due to our exchange of God for lesser things, our grasping after this world, is being thrown upon Jesus. The culmination of all of it over time and future is being thrown upon Jesus, the faithful one. We've only experienced fractions of this hiddenness, of this darkness, while Jesus knows the full weight of the hiddenness of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, he is faithful even in this moment of experiencing God's seemingly absence and the utter darkness of evil. He is faithful to cry out, my God, my God. He is faithful to wait and commit himself to his Father's power to overcome the darkness, to overcome the evil that hides his presence. Which is why the Father which is why the Father vindicates Jesus in the resurrection, judging and dealing with evil, crushing the darkness, and revealing the light of his face yet again. God's judgment is about the business of vindicating himself and restoring things the way they ought to be, which we will get a beautiful glimpse of in the prophecy of Micah next week. So come back. A beautiful picture of God's restorative hope that he has set to take place. This is a restorative judgment. The end goal is to regather. The end goal is to restore, to bring back. And he is doing this through the work of Jesus' sufferings, death, and resurrection. For those in Christ 
looking to him, confessing their sins, embracing him, walking with him in their baptism, there is great hope to be had of God's justice, of God's judgment to regather, to restore. And this is the supreme image in which we all together embrace in that hope, to gather around Jesus' table, Jesus' life, to set that which is wrong right in us, around us, and throughout this world. So Yahweh is the faithful judge we all need. Do we want him to overcome the power and penalty of sin and death? Then we need him to be a faithful judge. Do we want him to break the idols to which we so often cling? Then we need him to be a faithful judge. Do we want him to break the darkness and silence around us? Then we need him to be a faithful judge. Do we want to see God's presence and his goodness in our midst now and in the future? Then we need him to be a faithful judge. As a faithful judge, he sets right what ought not to be in order to heal, in order to regather and restore. He's committed to this, as we'll see so clearly from of old and today. He's committed to this. We'll see it very clearly in Micah's prophecy in chapter 4 of next week of what God is up to of old and what he is accomplishing through Christ now and what will come to be in the near future. He's done this for his people in Christ so that we might embody his faithfulness, justice, patience, and mercy now, today, in our midst. He's a faithful judge, and we need him to be for the life of the world. Let's pray.